Good morning, welcome to Rising. We have an excellent show planned for you all today on this Tuesday morning. Brianna Joy Gray is back in the chair. Nice to see you, Brianna. It's always a pleasure, Robbie. All right, what is our big story of the day? Well, Robbie, first, new data from the Consumer Price Index is out this morning. Inflation grew 0.4% last month and is up 6% from February 2022 in line with expectations. This marks the eighth month of decline after June 2022's record-breaking 9.1% peak. Americans are still feeling the squeeze across essentials. High food and energy costs continue to be primary drivers of inflation. These numbers come just after mass sell-offs wiped some $450 million from the global financial markets as investors reel from the crash of Silicon Valley Bank. Regional banks across the country are also feeling the SVB sting, according to MarketWatch. Spook depositors are withdrawing funds from their smaller institutions in order to invest them in larger banks. New details are emerging about what led up to Silicon Valley Bank's demise. Lever reports that in the years leading up to the crash, SVB's lobbying group fought a proposal requiring financial institutions to increase payments into the deposit insurance fund that protects depositors from bank failures. New reporting from the Wall Street Journal reveals SVB executives ignored employees' pleas for stronger risk management after Congress reduced regulatory burden for small and mid-sized banks back in 2018. Yeah, so this, here we are. This does seem like a recurring theme that every mm -hmm. time some kind of crisis like this happens, or even crises that are somewhat different, like the East Palestine disaster, suddenly there's all of this reporting on the deregulation that precipitated this, mm -hmm. the lack of risk assessors that were in key positions leading up to these kinds of crises, and a lot of people who are basically sitting there saying, I told you so, I could have anticipated this was going to happen, mm -hmm. but you didn't, didn't listen to me. And in this case, and the um, East Palestine, there's this interesting feature were folks that are politically often disaligned toward the kind of regulations that could be helpful in this in this instance are very pro-reform, which begs the question, mm -hmm. is it only after disasters emerge in a way that is kind of politically disadvantageous to you and your group, East Palestine, because mm -hmm. it's, a, it's Trump country, this bank because it's one that is frequented, used disproportionately by Silicon Valley business owners, a lot of people who are in, in, the, in the crypto craze and those kinds of things, that now suddenly you're into regulations only when things fail. I, I take that point. I, I view this slightly differently, I guess. I, I think we've uh, we've incentivized tremendous risk taking in the banking and financial sector mm -hmm. by perpetually bailing out uh, failing financial institutions. You know, it, it, from my standpoint, it should be okay for an institution to take a risk, but then you have to suffer the consequences if things go badly. Now we are letting SVB. Uh, SVB fail in that its shareholders are getting wiped out, its management, et cetera. Um, there is this, I'm sorry, it is a bailout of the depositors who uh, were not insured by the FDIC. FDIC insures up to 250,000, but it sounds like something like 90% of the deposits in that bank were outside the, the cap where FDIC kicks in automatically. And, and they're getting bailed out. And, and look, you know, for all the you can construct arguments for why this isn't exactly the taxpayers having to do it. It's coming out of FDIC. I mean, it's still other people's money it's, for other yeah, circumstances. It's a fund paid into by the banks, which right. has led some people to argue, well, where's the banks getting that money? And they make so much right. money on fees for particularly low-income depositors who, uh, you know, get over overdraw fees and things like that, right. which have been predatory for a very long time. The, the, the baseline truth is that when an instant when the FDIC, the government, whoever it is, they swoop in and rescue people who took a risk, who took a calculated risk, had a bad night at the casino, and then we come in and help them, you set yourself up for, you incentivize this very thing to happen again and again and again. 
like there, you can you can invest your money in, uh, you can deposit your money in less risky accounts. You can purchase more insurance through a variety of means. Um, you can diversify your portfolio. There's all sorts of things you can do. They sought out this bank for specific reasons because it has a connection to the venture capitalist kind of. Uh, 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 cultural class. Sure. It provides, I'm understanding, when we had Matt Stoller on yesterday, and he was able to explain this in greater detail, and everybody should check that out in case they have more questions. He was able to explain some of the services this bank provides specifically for that sector. And again, that's fine. I don't think that should be crushed or regula regulated out of existence. But look, if, you, if you're going to engage in risk, you have to, you get to reap the profits of risk. But and, the, and these people all they all want the benefit of risk when it works out. Yes, they're not saying those profits should be socialized. They're saying their losses should, should be, be socialized. socialized. And I, I really take that point. I guess for me the question is really, is is it is it really the case that the average depositor in this mm -hmm. bank is a sophisticated investor in the way that we typically consider financial transactions? So someone making risky investments feels somewhat different to me than someone who says. I have this money, I need to put it somewhere that's not my mattress, I'm sticking it in this bank. Because that seems to me the kind of routine decision that isn't necessarily based on what, which bank it is, you just go to the first one that's close to you, and do we want to disincentivize people from using smaller local banks? Do we want to live in a world where we only have basically four or five large banks that truly are too big to fail, and therefore are going to have exactly the perverse incentive structure that you described? And in this case, if, as you say, you know, as you've rightly pointed to, the bank itself has failed, it's not going to persist, is that sufficient incentive to present the, prevent the moral hazard of banks, the bank who is making the decisions right. that are risky, continuing to make those kinds of risky right. bets? We can only beat risk out of institutions in the long term if there is some consequence for, for getting it wrong, for screwing up, for, for, for making a bad bet. If it's all upside when you win, and then there's no downside when you lose. That's how we get right. this for, kind for of the calamitous. Bank, but what about yeah. for the depositor? But that's yeah. the, that's the only thing that I'm. Well, I mean, depositors should seek out. I mean, there should be a market mechanism for people seeking out safer places to deposit their bank, more fully insured. Uh, but systems. see, that's what's what this means. Yeah. Like, does that mean if you say that to yeah. people, then is what is that going to incentivize the kind of behavior that some people have reported is already happening, where people are taking their money out of smaller banks and moving them all into Bank of America and J.P. Morgan Chase? And is that going to create even a bigger moral hazard? Now, look, I think that part of the issue is the regulatory changes that were made are the bigger piece of the problem and it perhaps should be a bigger piece of the solution. So. You know, this this particular bank is going down. I think that's a good that's a good outcome. But should we also be talking more about the fact that there should be higher limits on what 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 number amount, what value amount in your, of your deposit is actually insured by the FDIC? There were lobbyists fighting tooth and nail against raising that mm -hmm. cap. Um, you know, should there be a higher tax on the banks paid into the fund that's supposed to insure these deposits? They fought tooth and nail against uh, having to increase that that those kind of monetary amounts. I think those kind of reforms are less likely to create the outcome where you, people are disincentivized from actually using smaller banks. And it's not clear to me if this bank really was attracting sophisticated depositors who should have known better and therefore should take on the risk of having lost their deposits, or whether this was a situation where it just happens to be a small bank in a locality where there are a lot of venture to have capitalists mm -hmm. because it's San Francisco, and as a consequence, they might be more sophisticated generally speaking, but they didn't use a sophisticated process to It sounds to me like these are more sophisticated depositors that, than that the average thing. 
Because it's not just, oh, this happens to be the bank down the street. This yeah. is the bank down the street that specifically caters to a class of highly financially literate people um, seeking venture capital services. And I, I should say, you, you said a minute ago, you know, a good thing the bank is, uh, is done or mm -hmm. is failing. Like, I don't, obviously don't relish people losing their money. I'm, I'm and, and, oh, and okay, the depositors From are being made whole. From a perspective. Right. I, you know, it's, but like the same way, and I'm, I feel bad for, like I feel bad for people who are stuck with crushing student loan debt. And it, like, the, I don't, I'm sympathetic to them. I, I regret the, the structural uh, things in our society that made them go down that route, and I would seek to change them. But just as I am absolutely against bailing them out, I I'm similarly would not bail out these depositors. And I don't see how it isn't, uh, a really striking hypocrisy to like be so against one and then totally in support of the I, other, I, I think which I, some, which I'm seeing some people, especially in the tech space, who I knew to be very yeah. against doing the student loan bailout, saying, "Oh, what you're going to let the banking system spiral out of control? You have to do this. How could you, you want yeah. people to suffer?" And, and using that same very emotionally manipulative language. I think that's that right. Larry, Larry Summers, chief among them. I, yeah. You know. So I, I agree, and I think that's part of why I'm having, having this hesitation. Just like with student debt, I think that's a very good example. I would rather there be more attention to these structural efforts and actually help people out. But the, the, what, the crushing, frustrating thing about this is that it seems very obvious to certain folks in the tech world, you know, David Sachs, whomever, mm -hmm. that these people are meritorious and should be bailed, bailed out. Whereas student debtors who did not choose to graduate into a time period when maybe they had an 8% interest rate as compared to someone else who had a 2 3 4% interest rate mm -hmm. are being told, well, that, that's just the bargain. Well, what about all the people who worked at this bank who are like, oh, no, I, I, I purchased these long-term bonds and interest rates run up, and that's why we, had, we weren't able to cover our deposits. Okay, well, how are those situations different, and why do we live in a society where there's so much so, so quickly, the government will step in to bail out one class of people, but not another. Yeah, that's a good point. That's why you got to be. That's why I'm skeptical of the bailouts <laughs> all the way around. Uh, a little bit later, actually, we're going to talk to someone, Vivek Ramaswamy, we've interviewed on the show before, is seeking the Republican presidential nomination and uh, has really been sounding the alarm on the moral hazard of this bailout. He's writing about it on the Wall Street Journal and kind of clashing with other people in the tech sector who have been more pro-bailout. Uh, we'll hear from him coming up soon later in the show and right up for you next is my radar stick around for that bobby what's on your radar today well brianna earlier this week in the midst of the collapse of the silicon valley bank whose depositors are now being bailed out by the fdic members of congress had a zoom call with members of that agency the treasury and the federal reserve now, according to Representative Thomas Massey, a Kentucky Republican, one Democratic senator wondered whether there was a program in place to censor speech on social media that could lead to a run on a bank. Now, the run on the Silicon Valley Bank does indeed appear to have been sparked in part by information shared by a financial writer in his newsletter. After that writer, Bern Hobart, exposed the bank's shady finances, certain large depositors began to withdraw. And since the bank is not required to keep sufficient funds on its books to pay back all the depositors at once, this panic created a situation where de depositors had to rush to get their funds out as quickly as possible before the bank ran out of money. With SVB specifically, this was even more pressing since more than 90% of the bank's depositors did not have FDIC insurance, meaning there was no guarantee of a bailout. But the bailout is happening after all, thanks to the Biden administration. But let's set that matter aside for a moment and return to the concerns that Massey raised. Who is this Democratic senator that thinks information that might start a financial panic should be censored on social media 
even if it's true information? Well, as Massey revealed to the independent journalist Michael Schellenberger, the senator in question was Mark Kelly of Arizona. Quote, I believe he couched it in a concern that foreign actors would be doing this, Massey told Schellenberger, but he didn't suggest the censorship should be limited to foreigners or to things that were untrue. The people from the three agencies couldn't answer him and just sort of took a pass on the question. Another crisis and the gut reaction from a Democratic senator, how can we censor speech on social media? Maybe that reaction isn't so surprising, given what went on at the weaponization of the federal government hearing last week, where Michael was joined by independent journalist Matt Taibbi in testifying before Congress about the tremendous pressure coming from the government aimed at censoring speech on social media. Republicans had convened the hearing and summoned Taibbi and Schellenberger, two of the journalists responsible for the Twitter files, to testify. The Democratic members insulted them and showed nothing but contempt for the idea that it was improper for the federal government to sidestep the First Amendment and leverage Twitter to engage in censorship. Now to expand on all this and tell us more about his experience, we're thrilled to be joined by Michael Schellenberger. Welcome back to Rising, Michael. Thanks for having me, Robbie. So it's been a wild uh, week for you. We talked at great length about the hearing. We, we, we watched much of it and uh, were really astonished by, again, not just the kind of disrespectful attitude that the Democratic members took toward you because, you know, whatever, political figures are, are not respected and, and are not respectful in turn. But they also, much more disturbingly, I thought, just fundamentally did not understand what the problem is or why we would be concerned about the FBI, the CDC, the State Department, the White House, other agencies, all these, these State, De State Department-funded nonprofits coordinating to limit speech, and they didn't seem to care. What was your takeaway? Well, it was, uh, as you mentioned, it was uh, a, a mixture of some amount of humor and some amount of feeling concerned and even somewhat disturbed or chilled. I mean, I think the better interpretation is that the, the Democrats who were demanding that Matt say who his sources were, that they don't understand how journalism works, you know, a more disturbing conclusion would be that they do understand and, and they don't care. I mean, what we discovered in this, what came out of the Twitter files research was really that this wasn't just about, you know, unfair content moderation, that we certainly found that. It was really about this really intense pressure by various government agencies it sort of starts with FBI, but DHS, and we've also seen the White House demanding the censorship and the deplatforming of particularly disfavored views and people. We've also now seen that there's at least $40 million has gone to kind of spawn a censorship industrial complex in American universities and think tanks. There's definite efforts to redirect funding away from disfavored media outlets towards favored ones. It's, it seems pretty coordinated. I don't know how coordinated it is exactly, but this is unprecedented in the history of the United States for the federal government to be funding activities aimed at both establishing a predicate, um, a basis for censorship, and also funding organizations that are directly advocating censorship. And as you know, and I think it's important to remind ourselves, the federal government is not only uh, not allowed by the First Amendment to censor free speech, it's not allowed to subcontract or contract out or have other people do that work for it. So just funding people to demand censorship itself is a violation of the First Amendment. So I think we left somewhat concerned. I do think that what we saw, we've also seen that when you really bring these issues into the public eye, uh, most people are very strong supporters of the First Amendment, Democrats and Republicans. 
And I think it leads for most policymakers to back off when they're confronted on it. Yeah, the political figures at that hearing, and again, frustratingly, mostly the Democrats, although, as you said, this should not really be a partisan issue, and, and also the agencies responsible for so much of the indirect censorship are not, you know, are not really operating in exactly partisan fashion. Um, there, they were. It seems to stem from this misunderstanding about the misinformation, disinformation question. Uh, you know, I, I saw you and and Taibbi questioned about about the you know the hack and release of the Hillary emails, et cetera. You're talking about all these bad things, but that's not the information. The, like the underlying information, as was the case with the with the Hunter Biden laptop. Like it's true information. You can obviously say, well, it was illegal how that happened and, and you know, that was wrong. But for journalists to reflect on that learned information is not that's not being complicit in misinformation. That's a, it's a very weird category that has arisen that is now being used to, to crush speech. This idea that it's it's Russian originated or it's benefiting Russia. So it's again, so it's it's lies and it's wrong and it's OK to censor it, which just isn't true. Yeah, I mean, I think this is I, I find myself in this very funny. I'm a little disoriented because I never thought, you know, after you know, doing journalism for 30 years and, you know, being, you know, writing about politics for so long that I would need to defend the First Amendment or remind people what the First Amendment says. The First Amendment is very radical. I mean, it's and it's impressive the more you understand about it. I'm not certainly not a constitutional scholar, but when you really look at what the Supreme Court has ruled over the years, basically all forms of speech are protected except for those that result in imminent violence or imminent incitement. In other words, just basically calling for people to be killed directly in a riot type situation. But otherwise, you know, the First Amendment protects your right to be wrong. It protects your right to lie, to tell stories, to be misleading, because, of course, we can't agree about what's misleading. We can't agree about even what the right facts are in various situations. And, and our, our founding fathers understood that. So we have these really broad protections for speech that that I, I really come to appreciate I, that I admit to having taken for granted for most of my life. And so when you get people asking, you know, saying things like, well, really, we should be censoring, you know, this misleading information, this misinformation, you sort of see uh, an escalation. I mean, we went from basically saying, well, the federal government should be, you know, censoring ISIS recruitment online. And I think most people kind of go, yeah, that seems right. And then it goes to, well, there's all this Russian disinformation. But then very quickly, this got turned on to, quote unquote, misinformation, which is just disagreeing with information that people are sharing online, to what's called malinformation, which is misleading information. And we now have seen pressure campaigns um, directly from the White House, but also by organizations funded by the federal government, demanding that accurate information of vaccine side effects be censored out of the concern that it will lead to vaccine hesitancy. That's exactly the kind of stuff that you, we should be worried about. You mentioned the concern around information leading to bank runs. You know, in a society, it, you know, democracy and capitalism both depend on this free flow of information. So freedom of speech is obviously a fundamental moral value that we all hold, but it's also necessary for the proper functioning of a democracy and of a kind of economic system that we have. Yeah, these Democratic electeds, at least in particular, seem to have a really hard time disaggregating the idea of the effect of information, inconvenient information, information that might even have a bad effect that I don't want, and information that is true, uh, that is um, that should be 
suppressed, which I would argue that, that, is, that is a very, very limited category, as you just described. The, the First Amendment protects very, very broadly. But they're unable to talk about things that might have been inconvenient politically, let's say the Hillary Clinton email leaks, or even certain kinds of COVID information that might have led people to take some risk-taking behaviors, and information that is it warrants the kind of suppression that we're talking about here. And when we're talking about this, this run on the bank in the um, SVB situation in particular, it's it's very misguided. Because remember, part of what, what was happening here was that all of these tech guys were on these text threads and Slack groups together talking about a potential run on the banks internally. This wasn't something that initially was being reported out. So the idea that you're going to basically preserve the ability for private actors to have knowledge of something that has such broad public effect by suppressing the ability of journalists to talk about it while it's still being discussed and the bad economic effects are still happening as a consequence of those people knowing and being able to withdraw their funds is extremely perverse. Yeah, that's right. I, it's helpful for you to unpack it a little bit to explain how crazy that would be. Basically, if you would, if you have any situation where you're disallowing or censoring the flow of financial information, you're actually exacerbating all the problems we worry about in terms of insider trading. Mm -hmm. So the you know transparency is absolutely essential. You know, I'll say to Bree that I think one of the things that just keeps coming up, and we heard it in the hearing, and we we hear it all the time, is people say things like these forms of speech that cause harm. That really resonates with, I think, those of us that certainly came from the left or are compassionate people. Nobody wants to cause harm, and we can imagine ways in which speech can cause harm. But that speech is protected, again, in all situations except for immediate incitement of violence. I mean, we're talking about direct, immediate, present danger to people. That's the only forms of speech. Otherwise, every other form of speech is, is protected. And I think that, the, you know, the problem, of course, is that, you know, it's sort of it's I think what I've come to is that you sort of see how a culture of what sometimes is called safetyism, this kind of overprotective culture, a culture that on some ways grows out of a very positive concern for vulnerable people has now been weaponized and abused and is used as a way to prevent forms of speech that we dislike. And I think just in a culture of narcissism, People just end up over applying these terms and just sort of exaggerating what kinds of speeches cause harm. And so I think we have to push back on that. I do think that reasonable people, when you really unpack what what advocates of censorship are saying and you really understand that when people are talking about disinformation, misinformation and malinformation in almost every case, it's a predicate. It's a kind of pretext for demanding censorship. And we should be very alert to it and call it out as soon as we see it. Hmm. Amen. It's so odd to see the, the pro-democracy coalition as the ones who want to limit speech on a vast range of topics, now maybe financial subjects as well. How does that enhance democracy to prevent the, the masses from learning information that the insiders already had, exactly as you explained? Uh, Michael, thank you so much for the work you're doing, uh, for, for braving uh, Congress and uh, for being on our show today. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. More Rising right after this. House Oversight Chair James Comer weighed in on the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank. Let's hear what he had to say. And then we see now coming out that uh, they were one of the most woke banks in uh, their in their quest for uh, the ESG type uh, type policy you know, and investing. You know, this could be a trend, and there are right. consequences for bad Democrat policy. And I think we need to keep an eye on all the the banking sector right now. 
NBC News reporter Ben Collins tweeted, I'm telling you, they're actually running with the woke banks thing. They're already using scary placeholder acronyms, ESG and DEI, which to them mean diversity. It serves to obfuscate the reality there was a panicky bank run, front run by some of the GOP's biggest donors. Entrepreneur and 2024 presidential, can presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy joins us now to discuss. Welcome back to the podcast. <laughs> back to the show. On. That's an old habit of mine. All right, Vivek. So what do you make of this? Um, let's start with this conversation about whether or not wokeness was really the cause here. You've been a critic of ESG in the past. Was that a meaningful factor here? I don't think it's the central part of the story. I have been, believe me, I'm the biggest critic I know in the, the ESG movement and woke capitalism in America. That's not the heart of this story. This is a story about crony capitalism, where Silicon Valley Bank engaged in a bunch of risk-taking behavior, a bunch of tech startups that banked with them over-concentrated with Silicon Valley Bank. Those are mistakes the market ought to punish. That's how the free market works. Competitors who make better decisions win. Competitors who make poor decisions lose. But actually, nonetheless, the Biden administration came to the rescue for a bailout of Silicon Valley tech and these tech startups, these well-funded venture-backed tech startups at that. Now, there's an element here, though, that is relevant, which is that if this had been an oil and gas bank that no one had heard of in the middle of Oklahoma with a bunch of oil and gas firms as its clients, I have little doubt in my mind this would have not gotten the bailout that it did. And this is a bailout. I'm using that word intentionally. And I'm happy to say more about why it is a bailout, despite the fact that Biden says it's not. But because it's in the heart of Silicon Valley, because Silicon Valley Bank and its cronies have bent at the temple of identity politics and ESGism, because Silicon Valley Bank was the one that even just a year ago, think about this, made a $5 billion commitment to sustainable finance, making for a healthier planet rather than a healthier balance sheet, they got to be perceived as one of the good guys that needed to be saved. So I do think it's an element of the story, but I'm not pretending like it's the heart of it, but I do think that this idea of either pretending that that was the whole story or dismissing it just because some Republicans are saying it, but not in the most eloquent way, both miss the point. So I agree with you that it's a bailout. I think it should be called out as such. I think people that have opposed previous bailouts, as I have uh, in you know whatever sector we're talking about, ought to oppose this one too. There's nothing more especially more deserving about you know the, the people involved here that they should get uh, a bailout. And I've seen you, so I, I'm happy that you're describing it that way. And I've actually seen you kind of clashing or arguing with some other some folks, brought, some of them even on the right, but in the tech space, who think this time it ought to be different. You know, what are the David Sachs type people missing here? I think they're missing the blinders of self-interest that caused them to see a situation that they would have seen the same way I do on first principles, but mm -hmm. their proximity in Silicon Valley and their raw financial self-interest caused them to take a different position now instead. Okay, these are supposedly beloved libertarian free marketeers who, when their own situation goes south, wants the government bailing them out. And so even all a lot of the weekend, this whole Silicon Valley crowd was fear-mongering the whole time almost as though they were rooting for a bank run this week because that would have justified a bailout for their portfolio of companies. Well, the reality is companies like Roku or other tech companies should not have been concentrating hundreds of millions of dollars at Silicon Valley Bank. The reason they did wasn't just stupidity. Many of them got private benefits like venture debt, like other private benefits that Silicon Valley Bank provides to founders. So they weren't necessarily dumb. They got private benefits that the American people will never enjoy. But when those risks go south, they still want the American people to save them. 
That is cronyism. It is corruption in the highest form. And many of these people, I don't care if they lean right or left. This is not a right wing or left wing issue. This is an issue about fighting corruption. And I'm sorry to say, yet again, cronyism won the day in the end here. And I will not stop until we have smoked this out. And oh, I'm running for president to reform a broken system that makes this happen again and again, whether it's Republicans or Democrats that are responsible for it. What do you see as the limits of what the government should do to protect depositors here. Do you fundamentally agree with the idea of $250,000 of uh, deposits being insured by the FDIC? Do you support people who say that the real issue here is that the cap should just be somewhat higher or that the stress tests that were um, gotten rid of under the Trump era with the you know support of about 17 Democrats uh, should have been in effect so that the risk-taking behavior would have been mediated by the fact that they should have anticipated having uh, uh, high interest rates at some point in the future. Are those kind of regulations things that you support or would you fundamentally say that for the free market should take care of all of this and that no depositor in the country should have their deposits uh, insured even up to the $250,000 amount. So my first principle is same rules of the road for everyone, state them in advance, and then apply them evenly. But what I'm dead set against is changing the rules in retrospect. Do I think there's reasonable room to prevent, for leadership to prevent bank runs in America? Of course, nobody wants a bank run. I think the way you do that is the Federal Reserve is the lender of last resort through clear communication and willingness to do that, to actually play the role, one of the few roles the Fed was actually set up to play. I think the Fed is also responsible for this crisis in a deeper sense because they've been trying to play God for the last 20 years, instead trying to balance unemployment with inflation, which they've done a horrendous job of. As president, I'm going to actually reform the Fed to abandon that expansive, expansive scope and go back to doing the few things they were supposed to do. Number one on the list is actually to stabilize the dollar as a stable unit of measurement, which we've completely lost. So I think that's the real problem here is with the Federal Reserve. But I do think if you want to avert a bank run, I'm all in favor of that. But do it prospectively. Apply the same rules of the road to everyone instead of picking favorites in reverse, which is exactly what happened here. Just to clarify, when you I think you said in a recent Fox News interview that more regulation is not the answer. Did you mean that more regulation prospect, you know, after the fact is not the answer, but you would do support regulations like putting back the stress te uh, test regulations into effect, perhaps increasing the amount that banks have to pay into the, uh, the FDIC fund that would cover uh, these deposit amounts and perhaps also raising the uh, level at which people, depositors are insured above the $250,000 mark? I go in a slightly different direction. What I say is we need to let the market work and deregulate, but without this shadow assumption that the, that the government's actually going to bail them out in the end. If the government's really going to be responsible for bailing them out in the end, that's a system that I don't want to sign up to. But in that system, I'm sympathetic to the idea that you need risk limits and you need capital requirements. The dirty little secret with Silicon Valley Bank is they're the ones that actually lobbied for a very long time saying that they were not systemically important. That's why they could operate according to lower risk limits until the bell tolled for them. And then this last weekend, it completely reversed the story to say we are systemically important, which the Treasury Department vindicated by on Sunday night saying they're, it's an emergency, they're systemically important, and actually using the public to bail them out. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be pedantic, but just to, to clarify, you could very well characterize the $250,000 amount as a bailout, right? as well, a bailout of well, depositors. It's not because it's so I just want to see what, it, what the distinction is between, or how one can go ahead and make the distinction between this amount that we all have accepted is protected for all depositors in the country and what is being characterized yeah. as a bailout over that amount. Thank you. It's a great question. I appreciate the opportunity to clarify it, right? So what I call a bailout 
is after the fact changing the rules to help someone who took risks that they privately would have gotten rewarded for, but when it goes south, the public changes the rules and bails them out afterwards. That's my definition of a bailout. So if $250,000 is the cap and those are the rules of the road, anyone collecting that insurance when they're signing up to a bank, that's fair game because a bank pays that it pays into that FDIC, but they pass that cost on to the customer. So the customer is actually participating in a system of insurance that they pay into that they deserve to get paid out at at the level that they signed up for. The problem here is we said $250,000 to ordinary Americans, but when Silicon Valley Bank had a tough time and when those tech startups were in trouble, we then said, actually, those rules don't matter for you. It's the it's, That's just the rules for everybody else. For an oil and gas bank and its clients in Oklahoma, that's how what we would have done. But for you guys, we're changing it after the fact. That's what makes it a bailout. Now, I think there's reasonable debate to be had of whether that $250,000 number, which was set in, I think, 2009, we've had you know a lot of inflation and price appreciation since then. Should that number be adjusted? I think those are all reasonable conversations to have. But this week, the most important observation to make is if you want to do that, do that prospectively in a thoughtful way as a policymaker, not shooting from the hip and picking favorites, which is exactly what happened in the last 72 hours. Hmm. I think it's an important message. Thank you so much, Vivek, for joining us to explain it. Vivek Ramaswamy, thank you. Thank you. More rising right after this. Dr. Anthony Fauci hammered critics, including Elon Musk, for suggesting that he should be prosecuted. CNN's Jim Acosta read a tweet that Musk posted in December of last year, reading, quote, my pronouns are prosecute Fauci. This was his response when asked about it on Acosta's program over the weekend. Let's watch. Well, I mean, there's no response to that craziness, Jim. I mean, prosecute me for what? What are, what are they talking about? <laughs> I mean, I wish I could figure out what the heck they were talking about. I think they're just going off the deep end. That's the answer to your first question. It doesn't make any sense to say something like that, and it actually is irresponsible. Of course, it's going to have a difficult effect and a deleterious effect on my family. I mean, they don't like to have me getting death threats all the time. Every time somebody gets up and spouts some nonsense that's misinformation, disinformation, and outright lies, somebody somewhere decides they want to do harm to me and or my family. Now, Fauci has been the target of many Republicans, especially since the start of the pandemic. Recently, he's received even more criticism as U.S. agencies finally concurred that a lab leak was likely what led to uh, COVID-19 and the pandemic. Uh, so what do you make of this? Is it fair for Fauci to push back and say, prosecute me for what? Is this a meaningful inquiry into some actual legal wrongdoing on my part? Or is this uh, Republicans trying to basically politically exploit what might be, yeah, real mis mistakes that were made during the pandemic, but not criminal uh, action. So I think it is premature to prosecute Fauci for anything. And I want to be careful here because a lot of people were saying that back when they were just, you know, opposing mass mandates, social distancing, other things. I also oppose all those things. I think that was advice that Fauci gave in his role as a health advisor. I think it was not advice I agree with. I don't think legitimate policy disputes are grounds for prosecuting him. So the, the case for doing for for 
holding him accountable in some kind of criminal context has to do with the funding of the research and what he said about it. Now, uh, you actually, just before we started the segment, pointed me <laughs> to some uh, reporting that my own magazine, Reason, has done on this subject. Bonnie uh, Christian, who writes for uh, Reason, uh, contacted the offices of several Republicans who had engaged positively with this prosecute Fauci tweet. And uh, Senator Ted Cruz, Senator Rand Paul indicated to the extent that they responded to this inquiry that, uh, yes, they're, they're looking at it from a he, did he lie to Congress standpoint when he said that we, did, we do, were not doing gain-of-function research or that the pause was obeyed. And, and then you get into th those arguments he had with Rand Paul about the spe specific nature of how you would categorize the research we did. I think it is not wild to think that he misstated um, uh, what was being done. I think we need further investigation before there would be any sort of thing along those lines. I don't think it's crazy to suggest that there was uh, misconduct based on what we now know. Um, I mean, I, I listened to that deposition where he, for hours, talked about how, despite the pause on gain-of-function research, he maybe repeatedly signed off on an exception, and then he wasn't sure what exactly he'd signed off on. I, I, there are very legitimate questions to be had here. Is it premature for to prosecute him? Yes. That doesn't mean we won't get there. Yeah, I mean, your colleague points out that they have to prove not only that um, there was, in fact, research that can be characterized as gain-of-function research, but that Fauci knew about it and purposefully lied mm -hmm. um, to get something like a federal perjury charge to stick. And it is worth noting that most of the people that she reached out to, the journalists reached out to, I think none of the representatives contacted, uh, re uh, responded. And uh, Ted Cruz wouldn't commit to the idea that a federal, federal per a perjury charge is what they're actually after. Uh, I think uh, Rand Paul was the one that was most responsive. Mm -hmm. And that seems like what they're after. So again, the question is, you saw that Fauci's response there seemed to indicate that he believes this is ratcheting up threats to his life, um, security threats, those kinds of things. And I do think that there's a kind of pattern of, you know, lock her up, throw Hillary in jail, you know, this idea that prosecute Fauci is going to lead to him behind bars in a way that's very satisfying to people who are frustrated mm -hmm. with his uh, role uh, over the last two years. You know, and, and does using that kind of language satisfy a kind of bloodlust that's not really connected to what would happen even if he were prosecuted for, let's say, a perjury charge? I don't know. I hear what you're saying, and in a lot of these cases, including the Hillary Clinton case, right, there was a lot of political bloodlust, as yeah. you just put it. In the Fauci case, look, I don't know. I'm keeping an open mind. What we're learning about the, the funding of the research and, and, and then that, that, inter, that period when it first, when Fauci seems to have first had the idea that, oh, is this, could this have come out of a lab? Who are my people on that? And then, and then seem to push them in a direction of deciding it was not a lab mm -hmm. leak, including, it sounds like, actually commissioning that scientist to write a report saying it's not lab leak, which he then cited in a press conference without, without admitting that he had pressed for that report to be written that way. We're starting to get into some very, and like there are huge stakes here. There, there were only millions of people who died as a result of this pandemic. So I, I don't know. Obviously, everyone deserves due process. Uh, I, I, he is, is entitled to the full benefit of, of, of due process and an assumption of non-guilt and et cetera, et cetera. And I would want to, you know, really rigorously investigate this before we proceed in any direction. But um, 
I don't know. I, I think there might be a there there, frankly. Yeah, it looks like the maximum um, perjury penalties are up to five years. Who actually gets real jail time for perjury is a very interesting question. And whether or not people think that is like well, you know, well matched to what he's been accused well, of is a, another interesting sure, question. If, but, if he said something wrong at a hearing, right, that's not the biggest deal in the world. But that would be Again, that would be holding him accountable if it does turn out to be the I mean, case that our research had something to do with what yeah, happened that, with look, COVID. That's the word, right? I think it's legitimate yeah. for people to be looking for accountability somewhere. Um, the crisis was horrible, and people the suffered. The harms are incalculable. And that's I, I, once in a while I understand the impulse. It does feel a little bit like a like yeah. a maybe misdirected. It's not to say that Fauci isn't responsible for the role that he played in this, but it also very much does seem like there was a much bigger cover up. It's it's the people who were fund, both funding EcoHealth and going and doing press in the weeks after the pandemic emerged, yeah. saying it absolutely couldn't have been a lab leak. It's the people who potentially destroyed evidence that could have actually pointed to what happened here. You know, if a, if, a, if a drunk driver crashed into the van carrying the vials of COVID and they spilled out, we had a pandemic because of that, you'd want to hold that person accountable. But even in that example- Or the damage beyond just a car crash. Sure, but even that example, that person's judgment proof. That, that truck driver can't pay for the trillions of dollars, dollars in economic damage and death that have, have been the consequence of the COVID pandemic. So on some level, the problem here is that there is always going to be a mismatch between how much any of the individuals responsible can be held ac accountable versus the need for people to be made whole. And unfortunately, while we should be talking about how to make people whole, I don't think it's going to be mm -hmm. from the people who actually, you know, it, it's not possible to draw those resources from the people who are responsible. Although I would like to take a much closer look at the role of the pharmaceutical industries and the like played because those are actual yeah. deep pockets. The harm here is so vast, and people are correct to be starting to connect these dots and saying, wait, what were we funding? Yeah. Why and why is this, uh, why are the government health advisors in the pharmaceutical industry so so hesitant about asking, answering any of our questions about these things? Why were they so evasive? Uh, it really does, it is concerning. As, as Marjorie Taylor Greene said in response to the Elon, um, my, my pronouns are prosecute Fauci tweet, she said, I affirm your pronouns, Elon. <laughs> oh, we got one. It's funny. One, one affirmation. There you go. Someone's identity. <laughs> More rising right after this. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer admitted this about past decisions made regarding COVID lockdowns. I guess hindsight is quite literally 2020. Let's take a listen. Michigan would have been manufacturing the world's masks and swabs and would have helped keep people safe. But um, I mean in terms of lockdown. In terms of, you know, there were moments where we, you know, had to make some decisions that in retrospect don't make a lot of sense, right? Um, if you went into the hardware store, you could go into the hardware store, but we, we didn't want people, you know, all congregating around the gardening supplies. People said, oh, she's outlawed seeds. It was February in Michigan. No one was planting anyway. But. Um, that being said, you know, some of those policies I look back and think, you know, that what maybe was was a little was a little more than we needed to do. So, well, Robbie, is this nice. something to celebrate? <laughs> well, look, it's nice to hear anyone, any government official who was responsible for these policies admit um, that they were wrong. Um, Michigan's, yes, their policies around like home and garden supply buying were 
I know that sounds very specific, but they were especially egregious and like you could go to one store and do this, you couldn't go to this other store. It was so arbitrary as she's admitting there, you know, what was locked down and what wasn't. Yes, fine. At the very beginning, you know, Michigan is not was not unique in that regard. There was create policies that didn't make sense anywhere. You know, no one was going to the beaches in Michigan at the time. It was very cold. I'm from Michigan. Very cold there in the winter. Uh, but in, uh, in other places, right, you had a policy that, right, they closed beaches, they closed parks, et cetera. Now we know you should have let people, and, and honestly, we knew pretty early on it, it was, there was no, no public health rationale for doing that. In fact, it was negative for public health because you were driving people crazy by keeping them cooped up all day inside when they would have been perfectly happy. And healthier, healthier outside. outside. Um, you know, that's not the only uh, very bad COVID rules uh, enacted in Michigan. Um, the same nursing home policies that were in place in New York that um, partly doomed Andrew Cuomo. I mean, he was actually resigned over the sexual misconduct stuff, but he should have resigned and maybe faced more than just resigning over the policy of putting sick COVID patients back in nursing homes. Um, there are a lot of questions about whether the exact same policies were in practice uh, in Michigan. This is very personal for me. I lost someone, uh, elderly woman who took care of me mm. when I was a kid. She died in a nursing home, got COVID right at the very beginning. Mm. Um, you know, it, yeah. it sounds like, I, I, again, I don't, I don't know for sure, seems like that could have been the result of very similar policies. Yeah. Um, and that was wrongheaded. And she's never really faced uh, the, the, the level of investigations that Cuomo got. Um, I, again, I'm not saying it was exactly the same, but I th there was enough there to look into it. Um, so I, I hope that day of reckoning comes. So what do, you, what do you think? I mean, obviously, I think it's a good thing for folks to be openly discussing mistakes that were made during the COVID era. Mm -hmm. I don't see it as beneficial for people to feel so afraid of backlash that they won't even acknowledge that they've done things that are wrong. However, is that enough? Are these kind of little admissions that are sneaking out here and there enough? Or do we want to see a more robust reckoning in some way? You know, we saw, for example, in New York, the people who had been fired as a consequence of not getting the vaccine had um, financial recompense made to them. Do you think there's other kinds of um, policies that we should be looking toward to make people whole for having suffered in ways under pandemic? Or should public officials be facing more scrutiny and perhaps you know, mm -hmm. electoral challenges as a consequence of making these bad decisions? Yeah, I mean, electoral consequences are the correct way to hold public officials accountable. If you're supposed to not agree with their decisions. Not and prosecuting then... Fauci. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, right. As I said in that, in that remark, I don't think he should be prosecuted over having given advice I disagree with. Now, maybe he should be looked at being held in, for some criminal matter if it, indeed he lied to Congress or indeed some of the funding that he was responsible for caused the pandemic. That's an open question still. Someone like Whitmer, yeah, you would have hoped she would have uh, faced a serious reelection challenge. She, she did. She was just reelected in the midterms that were very favorable for Biden. Her Republican opponent, I think, unfortunately, was too far right for the uh, for the for the state. The state it's a swing state. Uh, it's a state that had a Republican governor mm -hmm. for eight years before Gretchen Whitmer, a very kind of moderate, non-Trumpy Republican. Um, it's a state that went for Trump the first time and then flipped back to Democrats afterward. It, it's a it, it's a it's a state that Republicans can win in if they run the right kind of candidate. And I think a candidate who thoughtfully responded to some of Whitmer's policies that didn't make any sense, um, in addition to you know, all sorts of other things would have been well poised to actually defeat her. But again, it was a very pro-Trump kind of flirting with election denial type candidate who, who lost. And that's the reality is that <laughs> you're going to be governed in some of these states by one party if the other party is not, um, is not speaking to voters' needs and then also eschewing 
the kind of thing that voters just have, have, have no appetite for. Yeah, I mean, I, I was reflecting on that famous image of the guy who dressed up as the Grim Reaper and was stalking the beach, um, kind of yeah. shaming people out of doing an Chasing activity. Chasing people <laughs> off beaches. It was one of the healthiest activities that you can engage and he was, in. And he was written about favorably right. in the mainstream media. They right. were in love with this guy. And, and I, I was just reflecting on that moment in time. And It was pretty crazy. Yeah, and how, you know, in some ways, I think, while it was inappropriate, I think a lot of people saw it as inappropriate at the time, others who might only in retrospect look back and see it as goofy as it, as it really was, mm -hmm. did so because of the, the really high level of fear that people mm -hmm. were living under back then. And that's not an excuse, but I'm just reflecting on why it is that people like Gretchen, Gretchen Whitmer are now willing to come out and make some of these admissions. It's because the fear level has gone down rightly or, or, or wrongly. I mean, I think rightly, although I think there's some concerns about long COVID that aren't sufficiently Gretchen Whitmer, I believe, also deserves criticism for how she framed this entire kidnapping plot that she was supposedly mm -hmm. a victim of. Um, look, it is not, it is, there was no plot. It was it was very much the FBI understood the whole time what was going on, and in fact paid and goaded the operatives to go yeah. along with. I mean, this is what, I know a lot of uh, you know kind of right wing people now think this is true of like everything that happens. Mm -hmm. so everyone's a paid FBI informant. It was an inside job. This is not a conspiracy. It genuinely was the case with this operation yeah. that every part of it was understood and fully being monitored by the FBI. She was in no actual danger. In fact, they, they were they wanted the plot to move forward to a point so that they could prosecute these people yeah. who were just kind of upset right-wing people who were venting in a Facebook group. The fact yeah. that, it, that it got more involved than that is really on law enforcement. Yeah, I mean, it's just the only thing <laughs> I was going to say about the, about the Gretchen Whitmer thing and the kind of different climate of fear that we used to live under but now live under much less is that I wonder, you know, is there a kind of a good faith explanation for it? People were panicked and making silly decisions because, you know, it wasn't clear what the threat level was in the immediate aftermath of the pandemic emerging. But also, is part of the pivot having to do with people's longer-term political prospects? We saw Kathy Hochul make a real conservative pivot, that conservative pivot both on crime issues and on COVID issues, promulgating advice about how you can wear your mask under your chin on a subway and it's fine in a way that, like, made nobody happy and angered everyone. And Gretchen Whitmer is somebody, a governor from a Midwestern swing state who has desirable demographics in a, in a kind of democratic field where they're a little bit short on viable female candidates. And there's conversations about whether or not Biden's going to try to get rid of Kamala. And I wonder if there's a broader understanding that pivoting to a somewhat more common sense position on some of these COVID issues is a good political maneuver. Today. I think that was clearly the message Democrats got a year ago, year plus ago, when uh, when uh, Youngkin won in Virginia and there were a couple other very negative signs for Democrats. Um, I, I think Democratic pollsters maybe got the message that uh, we need to sh we need our candidates to show at least a little bit of humility on this COVID stuff to ease up on the on the whatever, ease up on the brakes or step on the gas or whatever the, the right metaphor is here to get past the COVID militant lockdown or voters are just going to punish us yeah. to the end of times for it. And they and to, so they did do that. And then they were able to not only stave off total defeat in the midterms, but actually have a very successful midterm. Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, so that's uh, my analysis of that little uh, situation going on in my uh, my beloved former home state. <laughs> Local Michigan. boy reports good. <laughs> <laughs> More rising right after this.
Well, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has been clear about his stance on COVID lockdowns, the culture wars, immigration, but the potential 2024 presidential candidate has been quiet on foreign policy until now. On Monday night, Fox News host Tucker Carlson aired responses to a questionnaire he sent to DeSantis seeking clarification on his foreign policy position, specifically the war in Ukraine. Carlson read key parts of the response. Let's watch. DeSantis is adamantly opposed to the position that most Republicans in Washington have taken on Ukraine. DeSantis is not a neocon. Who knew? Quote, while the U.S. has many vital national interests, DeSantis writes, securing our borders, addressing the crisis of readiness within our military, achieving energy security and independence, and checking the economic, cultural, and military power of the Chinese Communist Party, becoming further entangled in a territorial dispute between Ukraine and Russia is not one of them. Without question, he writes, peace should be the objective. The U.S. should not provide assistance that could require the deployment of American troops or enable Ukraine to engage in offensive operations beyond its borders. F-16s and long-range missiles should therefore be off the table. These moves would risk explicitly drawing the United States into the conflict and drawing us closer to a hot war between the world's two largest nuclear powers. That risk is unacceptable. DeSantis goes on to write that President Biden's actions with regard to Ukraine have led to an alliance between Russia and China. You know, this is interesting on many levels. One, I do think it's a foreign policy track that aligns most closely with what the American people have advocated for in poll after poll, and which, if the contest ends up being between DeSantis and Trump and Biden as kind of the big players in this whole thing— makes a very neat line for DeSantis, especially even in the context of a, of a general election matchup. There are a good number of independents and even some Democrats for whom this foreign policy angle is going to be dispositive. Yeah, he's drawing a real contrast with, obviously, what the Biden administration has actually done, which is said there is no amount of support that is too limited. Um, we, are, we are going to support them as long as it takes, as much as it takes kind of a blank check attitude. That is what Biden has signaled. I don't think that's quite where the mood of the of the population at large is. Obviously, mm -hmm. there are some Democratic representatives um, who tentatively tried to flirt with a different position and were, were forced to backtrack. But Republican voters clearly want something along the lines of what DeSantis articulated there. Uh, nowhere in that statement did he say that Russia is justified or correct or deserves to win this war. Uh, he, but he said something that is very realistic, which is that we cannot be drawn into World War III over a Ukrainian territorial dispute. And peace must be the objective, peace above all else, not preserving Ukraine's exact autonomy as it is now, but peace. So whatever brings an, a swift end to this conflict is what we should do, is, is pledging to arm the Ukrainian resistance until the end of time going to bring a swift, immediate end to this conflict? The answer obviously is no. That's something DeSantis sounds like he understands. Yeah. Now, some people have pointed out that this hasn't always been uh, DeSantis's position. Um, in 2015, when, of course, um, uh, Obama was president uh, and the conflict first started to emerge with uh, Crimea, he wrote, we in Congress have been urging the president, I've been to uh, to provide aid, uh, arms rather to Ukraine. They want to fight their good fight. They're not asking us to fight it for them. Now, obviously, there's a somewhat different circumstance that doesn't necessarily conflict with the idea of not wanting to send long-range uh, missiles and things that could instigate uh, a conflict between the U.S. and Russia. But there is, it does raise the question whether or not this is political expedience versus a kind of sincere 
policy position that you could count on if he were to be president of the United States? Well, look, I don't know what is in his heart with respect to foreign policy. I think it's clearly the case that 10 years ago he would have been more a standard. Uh, but 10 years ago, the Republican Party position on foreign policy was, uh, was, was not so clearly anti-interventionist. Um, the fact that he's moved in the direction of what Republican voters actually want, I think, is a good sign. Is it what he has sincerely always advocated all along? Obviously not. There's no way he can pretend that it is. But, uh, you know, but, but re reflecting what the, what the base wants, what the American people want on this, is, is a pretty good impulse. He, I, obviously, I wish he'd had a kind of Ron Paul-style foreign policy views since the beginning of time. But uh, barring that, this seems like the next best thing, which is to actually adapt to the views that the, that the, the voters have and that I think are actually the correct views. Yeah, I mean, I, I see thing. some more people here pointing out to uh, comments that he made in 2018 more recently. Michael Tracy, who has been very critical of escalation mm -hmm. with Russia um, and who has been very much on you know, yes. the anti-war side of things, is also skeptical of Ron DeSantis because he participated in this framing that was very common among Republicans that Barack Obama was weak on Russia because he didn't want to escalate and engage in this way, and that Donald Trump was strong on Russia because he did. And they were advocating for sending more lethal aid to, to, to Ukraine and things like that. So again, we have seen this with Joe Biden, promise after promise being made in the context of a presidential run uh, in a primary and then a general election run that are reneged upon the second that you're in office. And this is a pretty significant issue to hypothetically potentially renege on, especially when you have someone like Donald Trump, who, again, has had some mixed statements on these kinds of things, but has generally been since day one very anti-interventionist. And the question is, in a contest between those two, who's going to come out as the, the one true Scotsman of anti-interventionism? Yeah, I think that's the more interesting matchup here, because, you know, there's little doubt that the DeSantis view of this and the Biden view are, are very Biden is actually is actually governing. He's, doing He's it, actually yeah. doing the things. <laughs> and DeSantis says he doesn't want to do those things. Do voters trust Trump more on foreign policy than DeSantis Republican primary voters? Yeah. That is a question we're going to have to explore. Obviously, um, I think being a bit more be, being non-interventionist was Trump's is one of Trump's more sincerely held yeah. beliefs. Uh, it's something he said at times where before the media knew it was popular, yeah, actually, exactly. before, before the media had before caught on, cool. before Republican yeah. leaders, officials had caught on to the idea that no one in the party, that none of the rank and file actually support adventurism, before they had realized that, Trump had realized it. And I, I think it was in part because it was his natural inclination on Iraq and Afghanistan and some other things. Now, did he govern in accordance with those views? I, I would say his foreign policy approach was very schizophrenic. You know, he would say things that made sense about not, you know, being the world police and, you know, why can't Europe pay for its own defense and all those kinds of things. At, then he, at the same time, he, you know, put John Bolton, a, one of the foremost advocates of, like, you know, war with Iran and North Korea in a key foreign policy position. Uh, his personnel decisions certainly didn't, weren't based on a coherent, non-interventionist foreign policy approach. So this is going to be interesting yeah. to, to, you know, put someone, put, put DeSantis, a, maybe a newer convert to the non-interventionist right-leaning tendency up against Trump, who did talk the talk, but maybe didn't quite walk the walk. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. So the other last angle on this, I think, is the Tucker Carlson angle. Remember, there's been this ongoing story about these messages and emails that came out in the context of this Dominion lawsuit, which really demonstrate a, a significant level of animosity 
by Tucker Carlson toward Donald Trump and a frustration that Tucker keeps expressing that he has to kind of performatively be for Trump on the airwaves despite um, not supporting him behind the scenes. So the headline, I hate Trump passionately, has been everywhere. That's a Tucker Carlson quote. He also said, um, we're all pretending we've got a lot to show for the last four years because admitting what a disaster it's been is too tough to digest. But come on, there isn't really an upside to Trump. So is part of the request that's put out to DeSantis and then reading these sentiments that Tucker knows, he's because he's very politically savvy, are going to play well, well with his audience. Another part of him trying to hold on to Trumpism but distance himself from Trump and set DeSantis up as the heir apparent. Yeah, I, I think it's just transparently obvious that this was good for DeSantis, um, that uh, the, the things he's saying about Ukraine are popular with Fox's audience, just as they are generally in the, again, the Republican base. So, you know, letting viewers know that this is how DeSantis feels about it, given that this is how DeSantis feels about it, definitely a, a good thing for him. And, and you could absolutely understand how someone, again, Tucker's an opinion host. He's allowed to have opinions. His opinion might very well be that Ron DeSantis is the stronger Republican nominee. That's my opinion, too. And, and, and also that uh, his ability to kind of yeah. play two sides on the Trump thing and have a private position and a public position has been undermined by this Dominion lawsuit. So to the extent that he might have wanted to continue to be on the Trump train, I'm sure that this has soured his relationship with Trump. I don't know what kind of friendly interviews yeah. Trump is going to be giving on Tucker Carlson's show going forward. And maybe it's kind of forced uh, right. Tucker Carlson to, to switch well, forces. Trump, Trump put people on the right in the position of having to, f to defend really difficult and indefensible things, and nobody wants to go through that again. Mm. So it's not a surprise that uh, DeSantis is, to the extent he's the preferred candidate, mm. and also seems likely to be the actual more, more electable of the two in a general election. Yeah, but we'll see. We'll see. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> more rising right after this. imagine anybody disliking you. Oh, please. Do you know, do you want to know, ironically, who uh, dislikes me the most sometimes? Who? Myself. Oh, me too. Oh. And, but, I guess, you know, you've asked me now, like, you've asked me, like, what I would do to combat the hate, right? Yeah. But what do you do? Okay, that's a great question. Now, I started- You've been doing it a little longer than I have. Well, you know, it's funny, because when I was a kid, um, you, starting with E.T., it was the first time I was introduced to film reviews, which are basically social media. Yes. But I felt like all these reviews, and it would, could be a Charlie's Angels, it could be an E.T., it could be The Wedding Singer, everything in between, if you read reviews, just like on social media, you are pretty much guaranteed a 50-50, some like it, some don't. So you've got to be willing to bear down and brace for it. And I think... Now that relatively, I think, innocuous clip of Drew Barrymore showing a moment of empathy with a now pretty notable uh, trans activist uh, has set the... Internet, uh, a storm. Um, has it, Brianna? It, it really has. A number of conservatives have uh, accused Drew Barrymore of kneeling at the feet of someone that they describe as uh, a man and that it's somehow putting feminist feminism in, in women at the literal feet of a, of a kind of um, transgender agenda. Let me not put words in people's mouths. Uh, Xavier de Rousseau, who's affiliated with PragerU, tweeted, does Drew Barrymore not realize that she's literally on her hands and knees 
for a man famous Twitter account. Cat uh, Turd tweeted, wow, Drew Barrymore is You're on. not kidding. That is a very prominent right-wing account. Continue. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> more, more famous than us all, uh, said, uh, tweeted, Drew Barrymore is on her knees bowing before a man. How feminist of her. Um, Charlie Kirk tweeted, uh, Drew Barrymore kneels for Dylan Mulvaney, a man pretending to be a woman in one of the most bizarre interviews you will ever see. And they're all tweeting a, a screen grab from it before Dylan gets on the ground. And so it's, it's mm -hmm. Drew Barrymore kneeling. And people are, people are very upset by this. Uh, but now I don't know because I've never watched the show before and my uh, I think the last Drew Barrymore related thing I consumed was 51st Dates, which is a movie I love. It's a great film. Great movie. Um, she is often on the floor with the guest. Yeah, is so here's the, case? Here's, here's the thing that my reaction was, like, do you not ever watch the Drew Barrymore show? I mean, it's not like I'm sitting around watching daytime TV all the time, yeah. but I've seen enough of these clips go viral where she does this very big, like, radical empathy thing a lot on her show. She's often using her own life experience to have very heartfelt moments with guests. It's part of why people love Drew Barrymore. She's lived her whole life on the public stage because she was a child actress, because she's kind of coming from this Hollywood family, and because she's very publicly gone through her her own, own issues with um, addiction and, and whatnot, that sure. people have a lot of empathy for her and she channels that with her guests on her show. So she's on the floor with her guests so often that it provoked a an article uh, in Decider Magazine a couple of years ago called, Why Does Drew Barrymore Keep Interviewing Guests on the Floor? And it has some images of some instances of her doing because it. Because she's beholden <laughs> to the trans activist, Brianna. Well, funnily I'm enough, none kidding. of the other guests um, discussed yeah. in that article were trans. They're people who I don't necessarily like. Uh, one instance was with Hillary and Chelsea Clinton. You know, mm. take from that what you will. Another instance. She bows down before the Democratic <laughs> war machine, Brianna. <laughs> right. The problem with that analysis, of course, uh. there's any number of actors and actresses yeah. that she has sat on the floor with. And when asked, um, you know, why, uh, you know, she said there's something about the floor. It's just there's an intimacy. Uh, she said that in exchange with uh, actress Regina Hall when, when she asked her to get on the floor. So, look, it, it's very obvious from watching the show that she just does it to connect more and to seem more casual, like you're building pillow forts with your girlfriends and sharing secrets as a child. And it does, to me, speak to a certain uh, histrionic um, uh, path that some aspects of the right have gone down with respect to some of these trans issues. What do you think? Is this, is this evidence of the fact that some of the concerns about, you know, woke indoctrination or trans issues, you know, taking over, what have you, have sort of jumped the shark? Well, there has been this debate going on in maybe the last two or three weeks, uh, a little bit on the right, you know, Matt Walsh and Michael Knowles, two people who speak on transgender issues a lot from the conservative standpoint, very, very, very against it, uh, both affiliated with the Daily Wire, both talk a lot, give speeches, um, and, and they've been, uh, and, and their language uh, about transgender issues is very condemning, as strong as you can possibly imagine. There was a whole debate over whether they were, you know, Knowles was saying eradicate transgender people, or he, right. he did not say that. He said eradicate transgender. the transgender ideology, but it was perceived as, you know, eliminationist kind of rhetoric. Um, then others saying that this is not helpful, that they're being so um, kind of ugly in their commentary that this will turn people away. Actually, we interviewed someone on the show last week yes. who, who was formerly who affiliated with The Daily Wire and said that the, the, the cruelty of the rhetoric and the focus on a consenting adults, uh, she doesn't want, th this person who used to write for The Daily Wire doesn't want to have anything to do with that, is you know, concerned about how young, how we're starting these 
procedures for young people and thinks that's in the legitimate domain of public policy, but not the rest of it. So, so there is a question, and then Matt Walsh and Michael Knowles type people will will respond and say, well, what are you doing? You know, for the, no, this is how we. This is I am just as outraged about this as I seem, and this I want to shame people for having anything to do with um, with this movement, which you know I. I I don't feel about it the way that they do. If I did, maybe I would agree with that tactic. Yeah, but, I mean, um, something that um, more left-leaning people and liberals have been saying about this whole thing is that they don't believe, even if there were some legitimate concern about what the medical standards are, them evolving, ours being different than in some other countries in Europe that we would respect from both a civil liberties and medical perspective, that the nature of the complaints that have been risen by the right are not actually well matched with those concerns, and that, the, that they're just trying to get a crack in the door to, to actually, yes, condemning transgenderism, not having a conversation about you know, this procedure or that, or what the timing of it should be, or whether there should be any tweaks in the recommendations here, or whether there's some overreaches or mistakes that are made in, in discrete scenarios, people detransitioning and things like that, but whether or not transgenderism should be eradicated, as Matt Walsh said, and what does that mean? What does it mean? You know. This, what is transgender, transgenderism out, outside and apart from transgender people? Mm -hmm. And that is why people, I think, went to the conclusion that he actually is doing, uh, advancing a kind of eliminationism and a kind of um, right. genocide well, of he trans says, people. To be fair to him, he said, and I, I don't agree with him, but he said he wants to eliminate the ideology in the and same what does way that you mean? eliminate. How do you eliminate an ideology? What does it mean to eliminate the ideology of, let's say, uh, homosexuality. Right. What does that mean about actual gay people? Right. And if you can't articulate what the difference is, then are we just, um, you know, parsing hairs when we're talking about whether or not he's actually advocating for genocide? I, mean, or I, not? I think he, again, I don't want to put words in his mouth. I, I think he would advocate banning all sorts of procedures that uh, that facilitate even adult men right. becoming. Right. So this, this is the issue. As much as people say, well, yeah. this is just about the kids and being very reasonable. And I think that some people really do feel like it's the only, their only problem was with the kids. I think the guest we interviewed last week, sincerely she says she has trans friends and she sincerely um, is only interested in whether med medical interventions are too much mm -hmm. at a too young age. You know, and but the fact is, when you see the reaction of the same people who say it's just about the kids to an adult woman kneeling on the floor with Drew Barrymore, it it, it, it really undermines all of those kinds of arguments. And I want to quickly address the actual advice that was being discussed there, which I gather was about, you know, how do you respond to mobs Years, of hate yeah. that get sicked on you? And Drew Barrymore was saying, you know, it's like she remembers reading movie reviews and they'd be so nasty and, 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 and that can have the same kind of effect. You know, it, if you're a public person, if you're, you know, a celebrity, if you're in, engaged in creating content for the public, you are going to receive criticism, sometimes mm -hmm. good faith criticism, sometimes praise, sometimes a lot of attacks and a lot of negativity. And she was saying, Drew, I think, was saying that just don't read them. Mm -hmm. That is the right advice. Mm -hmm. Like, log the F off. If, if you don't want to, like, that is, it is a healthy thing. More people should practice disengaging from social media, from the comment section, from every, because it can get nasty and you're never going to make that go away. You're never, and, and the more you kind of complain about, like, woe is me, I have to read so much criticism, I think most people find that unsympathetic. 
Um, yeah, I think that's broadly, true. But, but for your own health, just tune it out. Yeah, I think that's true. But Log that off, also doesn't walk mean away. It's not impactful when, I mean, Drew Barrymore no, is literally. Saying, no, I know it isn't. No, because it is impactful, it is important right. for you so to tune it out. It's one thing to ignore it when you're not that famous. But Drew Barrymore is literally trending right now. Dylan Mulvaney was trending earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if, they still, if, if she still is. Um, and Dylan is also having to face, look, not just bad rhetoric in the public sphere, but a whole slate of legislation that's coming down the pike, dozens and dozens of bills that would make her life as an adult who has chosen to transition impossible or force detransition or make it illegal to dress in the way that she wants in public. And that's a little bit more than just social media attacks. And so, you know, this this is what a lot of the rhetoric has has led to. People like Charlie Kirk, who are relatively very mainstream in conservative circles, are out here participating in this effort to make an adult, an adult's decision to transition and live uh, in the I world. I don't support any of that legislation. Unbearable. Consenting adults to do whatever they want. Do you think this is a, a problem for the right not to be coming out more strongly against this kind of thing? Like, have they have they gotten over their skis? If we're in a place where people like Charlie Kirk and PragerU employees are say are are misgendering this person and saying that you know Drew Barrymore is in the wrong for being on her hand, literally on her hands and knees for a man, like. If institutions like PragerU and TPUSA, who Charlie Kirk works for, are not condemning the, that kind of behavior, do you think that's actually going to hurt their other kind of political? It probably won't hurt their podcast numbers or their attendance at their events or anything like that. Does it hurt the broader conservative movement? I would say yes. I'm 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 always warning the conservative movement from getting over their skis, as you said, on a, a whole host of issues. Mm. So maybe this is the same. I don't know. Although I think they're on. I think they're certainly on more, uh, regardless of whether you think it's right or not, the, the concerns about children specifically, I think, are more broadly shared outside even the Republican coalition. But um, that's, but yes, some of this goes, and, and, and regardless of whether it's good or bad, like, I just think it's wrong. I, whether it's good or bad tactically or politically. I yeah. Don't. Yeah. Well, look, let us know what you think in the comments. Let us know if you think that uh, Drew Barrymore, generally speaking, needs to get up off the floor. But we won't read them for our own mental <laughs> health. We're going to not read them. So, no, I'm just kidding. I do. Uh, I, I browse. I peruse the comments. I know you do. Uh, it depends on the segment. It depends <laughs> on the segment. All right. We'll have more rising right after this. Yesterday, CBS News reported that they reviewed records that indicate the U.S. government may have paid twice for projects conducted in China's Wuhan labs through the NIH and USAID. Let's watch. Former federal investigator Diane Cutler spent two decades combating white-collar crime and health care fraud. During the pandemic, Cutler turned her attention to U.S. government grants that supported coronavirus-related research in China. How many records have you viewed? Uh, my collection is certainly well over 50,000 documents. Records reviewed by CBS News indicate the U.S. government may have paid twice for projects at the Wuhan labs through the National Institutes of Health and the U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID. So uh, categorized it and then drilled down from there. This included possible medical supplies, equipment, travel, and salaries. So what I found so far is uh, evidence that points to double billing potential theft of government funds. It is concerning, mm -hmm. especially since it involves dangerous pathogens and risky research. So what I appreciate about this is, honestly, any mainstream reporting on 
the Wuhan lab, NIH, the funding going on, which this is, obviously this is not, you know, this is not a bombshell. This is the most damning indictment ever. But look, it, it shows some, some lack of caution, some lack of proper vetting and following procedure. We already know, you know, watchdog organizations have scrutinized the NIH and, and talked about how um, the, the, the pr proposals to do dangerous research were not properly vetted. They should have had an additional um, team looking at them and saying whether they should do them. So this goes to show you, look, I mean, I'm always outraged when taxpayers are being double charged for anything. I mean, even sometimes I'm outraged when they're being charged the first time. Yes, so they're being, know. <laughs> yes, they're being double charged here. But it, it shows again yeah. and again that are, are the people in these government health uh, positions who are supposed to be providing oversight, are they asleep at the wheel? That's the whole question. That's the fundamental question of COVID's origins. Yes. OK, so I do think that there's a difference between an oversight issue mm -hmm. and a money guy issue, a payment issue. Mm -hmm. I, you know, like, I, I think you're right. This isn't necessarily a bomb, bombshell because unless there is an argument that these, the Institute was double paid because there's a payola scheme or that they were trying to cover for something, you know, if there's some allegation right. that no, it's probably accidental, you know, it, but you know, if, it, if it's <laughs> one of these, mini, this whole thing, accidental, great. <laughs> I, sh Sure, but you know the Pentagon has failed its fifth audit in a row. Yeah, there was what like thirty percent of its budget that it couldn't account for. I mean, there they lost all that money in Afghanistan. Yeah, bye. Yeah, there's there's a lot of waste, particularly in those kind of sectors that doesn't get that don't get talked about. Um, yeah. Whereas there is so much focus on potential theft by poor people that, as we've discussed at at length. The, the poorest, one of the poorest cities in America is the most audited city in America in Mississippi. So like all that being said, it is a problem, obviously, if the government is you know, being double billed and especially paying for things that ultimately don't inure to the public benefit, but in fact might have been part of the cause of a global pandemic. I, I, I don't know, though, that this is more, should be treated any differently than any other kind of government money malfeasance story. Eh, fine. I, I, I think it's important for mainstream outlets. I, I'm ready for them to start, you know, walking their viewers down towards some suspicion of lab leak type stuff and Fauci I mean, that's true. and I mean, NIH. You could argue, though, Robbie, that this story is a way there. to kind of seem like you're talking about that without actually talking about the people who are really culpable, the administrations nice that are really culpable. Teensy little first step. Sure, I mean, but you could you could very much see this as okay. CBS says we have to talk about lab leak, but we don't want to mm -hmm. say anything negative about Fauci. We don't want to say anything negative about anybody else. So let's talk about this funding issue. I mean, you you can see it a lot of ways. So I don't. It's not nothing. Mm -hmm. um, it certainly is worth reporting on. Fair enough. Although it also is worth noting that the 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 investigator in the clip says. This may be evidence of double billing. It's not even entirely clear that they've proved that yet. So we'll definitely have to follow up. Well, CBS News also interviewed Senator Roger Marshall about why taxpayers should be interested in this funding. Let's watch that. Sources familiar with the grant records did not dispute CBS News's reporting. In a statement, a spokesperson for the USAID Inspector General declined to comment on the existence of a specific open investigation. Why should U.S. taxpayers care? I think there's 1.1 million reasons that American taxpayers should care. You know, if a plane crashes, we want to find out why the plane crashes. We go to any length to do that. And the hope is we don't have another plane crash for the same reason. So, right, the agency did not, you know, 
step up and say, wait, you got this wrong. We didn't do this. They also didn't, they didn't say, oh, you're right, you caught us. But of course, they were not going to say that. So that maybe it's a, it's a tacit omission that this investigator is on the, is on the money here. Literally, but yeah, um, but yeah. I agree with you that it's not like totally. Yeah, look, he says he uses us, this but. plane crash analogy. You know, a train. There have been several train crashes now in the past month alone, yeah. and there's some back and forth about whether there actually should be should be accountability. And you already see lobbyists trying to there stop. There should definitely be accountability. You definitely already see lobbyists and um, Republican Senator uh, Thune, who was one of the I think the largest recipient of a railway. Um, donations and was lobbying hard for some of the deregulation that caused this crash, getting right back into the fray and trying to prevent some of the interventions that people are advocating for right now in the wake of those crises. So I, I wish you were right that when a train crashed, that when a plane crashed, we want to get to the bottom of it and we want to fix it. Unfortunately, too often in this country, the things that get investigated and, and changed for the better are the things that are kind of sexy or um, there's political ad advantage to getting behind. But when you get down to brass tacks and actually mm -hmm. implementing policies that protect the American people, there's a, a real disinterest in, in follow through. So we'll, we'll mm -hmm. see. And I, I certainly appreciate the um, interest here in the investigation here. Um, whether, whether it amounts to anything in terms of behavioral changes at the CDC in terms of what they actually choose to fund, those some kind of those, those core problems uh, remains to be seen. Physician heal thyself. They need, they need <laughs> accountability. They're not, they're not yeah. paying enough attention. Yeah. Um, again, I always point back to Dr. Fauci not knowing whether he had personally signed off on uh, exemptions, exceptions for the lab sure. leak, or for, for the uh, uh, gain-of-function ban. Yeah. He's like, oh, I don't, I don't remember that. Yeah, I don't remember sure. everything that crosses my desk. Okay, well, this, Absolutely. Is how, this is how mistakes happen. Yeah. That does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, we're planning another very special show for you. Same rising place, <laughs> same rising time. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the move, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. We will be back with you tomorrow. What is tomorrow? Wednesday? It's Wednesday. Weeks flying by. Time, time flies when you're having fun, Robbie. That's right. That's what they say. <laughs> All right. We'll talk with you tomorrow. Bye-bye.